Good evening, everyone. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. I'm sorry, chapter 15. We finished 14 last time. And just by way of review, since we haven't been together for a couple weeks, last time we got together, uh, we saw Jesus being arrested in the garden. Uh, Roman soldiers had come, and along with the t temple po police, chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees, all being led by Judas to the garden where they arrested Jesus. The other apostles fled. Peter kind of follows at a distance. They take Jesus into the house of Annas first, who was the high priest officially of the nation and of the people. Of course, he was replaced by Rome with Caiaphas, who was Annas's son-in-law. And after they brought him, Jesus, before Annas and questioned him inside Annas's house, they then brought him across the courtyard to Caiaphas's house, where the Sanhedrin had been hastily convened, the Sanhedrin, of course, being the Jewish Supreme Court. And they began to question Jesus. And really, it was a mock trial. They were just looking, really, to find anything they could accuse him with. And they found something. Uh, uh, he claimed, of course, to be the Son of God, and so... Um, you know, and they asked, uh, did you claim to uh, say that you were going to destroy the temple and in three days ri uh, raise it up? And, and so G Jesus came back with, with uh, you know, basically what's the point of even telling you really what I meant by what I said? You only want to do one thing, and that is condemn me. And so they found something to accuse him with, and so now they hastily bring him now to Pilate. And that's where chapter 15 in Mark's Gospel begins. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes, and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. We could entitle this section of Scripture, The Silence of the Lamb. Because in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, it prophesies about Jesus Christ, and how that He was led as a lamb away to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is dumb, He opened not His mouth. And so He stands there silently before the Sanhedrin, and now before Pilate. Of course, Luke gives us a little bit more in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 1. In Luke's gospel, Luke tells us, Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying, He himself is, is Christ the king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he, has heard, he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. 
And the chief priests and scribes stood vehemently and vehemently accused him. Then Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day Pilate and Herod became friends with each other for before that they had been at enmity with each other. So Luke gives us now just a little more insight, but really John is the one who gives us the most complete picture of this event, of this incident. So if you turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 18, John covers basically the same events as Mark and Luke were writing about. Uh, John gives us, though, the most insight, the most detail. As we come to this section in John's Gospel and Mark and Luke, of course, Matthew also records it, we come to the second of two trials that Jesus underwent on the day of his crucifixion. Of course, the first trial was a mock religious trial in front of the Sanhedrin, as we have studied last time, in which Jesus was just basically railroaded. I mean, it was just a mockery. In fact, as we studied last time, uh, they broke almost every one of their laws in trying Jesus. I mean, the whole trial was illegal. It was held at night. Their law said they couldn't hold trials at night. I mean, uh, the witnesses had to agree. Both witnesses disagreed. I mean, everything about the trial was illegal and a, a, a sham. But they quickly went through this mock trial to give the illusion of a righteous hearing. And after they had found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, they then bound him and led him away to Pilate for the second trial he would undergo on this day. And that, of course, was before Pilate. But here again we see the calm majesty and quiet dignity of Jesus before Pilate, even as he had displayed earlier in the garden when the uh, soldiers came to arrest him, and then later in front of the Sanhedrin. Uh, it's obvious as we look at the way Jesus responded to this whole thing, this, this railroad job really of trying to get him uh, executed by the uh, uh, Pharisees and scribes and chief priests, it's obvious that Jesus is no victim here. He's in complete control. He is willingly submitting to the plan of God. In fact, we're going to see very clearly before the night's over that Jesus wasn't on trial at all here. Pilate was. We're going to see that it was not Jesus but Pilate on trial that morning, almost 2,000 years ago. And so as John opens up in verse 28, it says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. It was about 5 a.m. We know that Jewish court began at sunrise and ended at sunset. And they wanted to get there right when court opened up because they wanted to get this thing going. You know, They wanted to do this quickly so that uh, Jesus' disciples didn't have a chance to regroup and possibly try to come and rescue Jesus Christ. And so they were really wanting to get this done quickly. So they made sure that they got to the judgment hall, the praetorium, which is also the, the hall of judgment, uh, early, before court opened, so that when Pilate got there, they were ready to go. And so they brought him to the Praetorium. As I said, it was the Hall of Judgment. Probably it was located in the Fortress of Antonia, which was located on the north side of the city of Jerusalem. It butted up right next to the Temple Mount area. If you've ever seen any pictures of the Temple Mount to the north, that's where the Fortress of Antonia stood because the north side of the city of Jerusalem was the only side that was really vulnerable. 
Every other side had a valley. You had to the east the Kidron Valley, to the south you had the Hinnom Valley, and to the, to the west you had the Teropian Valley. The only part of the city that was really exposed and therefore easily attacked was the north side. And so that's why the Romans built the Fortress of Antonia there. And uh, they had it butt up right against the uh, Temple Mount area, which is where the Jews congregated quite a bit. The court of the Gentiles was there, of course. Uh, a lot of activity happened there. And they felt it necessary to have this fortress there also to keep the peace, as this was a volatile area. And so that's where Pilate was holding court. And so they went there early that morning. And the last part of verse 28, it says, But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. One of the things you have to understand is that Gentiles back then were oftentimes involved in some of the grossest paganism you can ever imagine. Uh, it was common practice for Gentiles to take their infant children and to put them into clay pots and bury them into the walls of their houses for good luck. Many times women would abort their own fetuses and they would put them in these clay pots and bury them in the walls of their houses for good luck. Uh, they were into some horrible things and so the Jews did not want to go into a Gentile's house because in their minds to go into a Gentile's house meant you were going to come in contact with a dead body. And they were afraid that if they came in contact with a dead body, of course, uh, the law said they would be unclean for seven days. And the feast of the Passover, which was uh, coupled with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the two were back to back. The feast of Passover took place on the 14th of Nisan. The Feast of Unleavened Bread started the very next day on the 15th and ran for seven days. Oftentimes the Jews would lump both together and call it the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you understood it meant the whole eight days. Now they were afraid if they were to go into Pilate's judgment hall uh, because of these these thoughts about Gentiles and all, uh, Pilate, who knows if Pilate had in his own walls of his own house uh, dead bodies of his children. And so they didn't want to come in contact with him or anything he had touched because they would be then defiled. So they waited outside. See, they didn't go into the judgment hall. That was the cultural background. But the practical issue here is the incredible, unbelievable hypocrisy of these men who were concerned about not going into a Gentile's house, or this in this case, a judgment hall, for fear of being defiled and therefore not being able to eat the Passover feast. But they had absolutely no concern. They were not concerned in the least about, about railroading an innocent man and having him put to death for really no reason. I mean, that didn't even phase them. But to make sure they didn't come in contact with the Gentiles so they could eat the Passover feast, that was the most important thing on their mind. It's what Jesus referred to when he said, they strain gnats and swallow camels. I mean, if that isn't straining a gnat and swallowing a camel, I really don't know what it is. But it really demonstrates the absolute hypocrisy and uselessness of religion, which focuses on the outward. You know, is only concerned with outward rituals and traditions and other religious trivials, but does nothing to really touch the heart and get at the heart. You see, that's, these men were classic examples of that. They were religious men. And because they were religious men and they claimed to, you know, in their own way, they, they, they loved God and they claimed to serve God, of course, it was all through rituals and all kinds of other traditions and all. But they had so degenerated to the point it was purely external. But 
it had given them a false sense of righteousness. That's the problem with religion. It blinds a person to their sin and gives to them a false sense of righteousness whereby you think you're actually righteous before God, but in fact, you're not. And so these guys were a classic example of that. And Jesus had earlier in Matthew chapter 23 indicted them for their hypocrisy when he said in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inward, inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That was a perfect illustration of these guys. See, of course, around Passover time, Jews from all over the known world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. But because these Jews were strangers to the area, did not live in Palestine, they didn't know where the cemeteries were. And again, if they inadvertently stumbled across a tomb and came in contact with a tomb, they would be defiled for seven days. They couldn't observe the Passover. And so to accommodate these travelers, uh, the Pharisees and all would whitewash the tombs so that you could see them from a good distance away and you'd stay away from them. And Jesus picked up on that and used it as an, as an excellent illustration of the Pharisees. You guys are like these whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you appear clean and righteous and white and holy. But inside, you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you guys walk around and people think you're so holy and righteous outwardly, but inwardly, you're full of hypocrisy and all kinds of iniquity. And so Jesus really nails these guys because their religion only had surface cleansed them but did nothing to affect their heart. That's the case with all religion except for Christianity. Every other religious system can only affect the outside of a person's behavior, can only kind of surface clean a person's life and give the appearance that something has taken place uh, inside when in fact all they have is outward acts and rituals and some behavior that appears to be righteous, but really their heart is still as sinful as ever. But only Jesus can change the heart. Only Christianity teaches that our God, Jesus Christ, when he comes inside of a person's life, he doesn't just surface cleanse him, he works from within. See, Christianity is not like other religious systems which try to, from the outside, work their way into a person's life. Christianity starts in the heart and works its way out because, as Jesus said, cleanse the inside of the cup, it will overflow and cleanse the outside also. That's what he came to do. Change your heart, give you a new heart, and of course a new heart will begin to work its way out with new desires and new actions and so on. And so that was the Pharisees. They were classic religionists. You know, outwardly they appeared righteous, but inside they were just as wicked and sinful as anybody could be. So in verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Now, Pontius Pilate, and his name really is pronounced Pontius Pilate, not Pontius Pilate, but we've all kind of known him as Pontius. Pontius Pilate was no fool. He was no wimp either, by the way. He had to have something on the ball if Rome put him in charge of this very volatile area in the first place. And Pilate knew that Jesus was an innocent man. Well, if that was the case, then why did he allow himself to be railroaded by the Jews, this, these Pharisees and scribes and chief priests and all, why did he allow himself to be railroaded by these guys into making a decision that he himself was very uncomfortable with? 
Well, to understand why, you have to understand some history. In 4 BC, Herod the Great died. Herod the Great was uh, the king over Palestine. And in his will, he left that his three sons, Philip, Antipas, and Archelaus, would have the kingdom divided up among them. And so that's what happened. Uh, Antipas got the area of Galilee and uh, Perea to the north. Uh, Philip got the area of uh, Batania, Aronitis, and Trachonitis to the northeast, which was a kind of a wild, unpopulated area. And Archelaus, who was only 18 at the time, got the area of Idumea, Judea, and Samaria. Well, Philip and Antipas did fairly well. They ruled quietly and fairly, but Archelaus was a tyrant and an extortioner. And the Jews finally persuaded the Roman government to get rid of him, which they did. And in his place, they appointed a governor, or what's co uh, called a procurator uh, in your, in your uh, uh, scripture. Uh, it was a governor, basically. Uh, they, they exchanged the ruler, the king of the area, for a governor who reported directly to Rome, of course. And because this had been a trouble spot, they also assigned uh, troops to the area to be stationed in the region of, over which the governor had control. So that's kind of the background. Now, these governors began to rule over this area uh, in 6 AD. In 29 AD, Pilate was appointed the new governor over this area. In 35 AD, Pilate was removed from office there and was, uh, was called back to Rome in shame. And many people record that Pilate went ahead and committed suicide. So his life ended on a very tragic note. But Pilate, right at the beginning, started off on the wrong foot with the Jews. I mean, on his very first visit to Jerusalem, just after he was made governor over the area, on his first visit, and remember, he didn't live in Jerusalem. Uh, the governor lived in Caesarea. That was the, uh, the official Roman capital of the province. That was like the headquarters. So the governor had his, uh, his, his mansion there, and that's really where he lived. Uh, but he would often come down to Jerusalem uh, different times during the year, and especially during the feast uh, times, because Pilate wanted to be accessible and all during these times. But on his very first visit to Jerusalem, he rode through the city with a deta uh, detachment of Roman soldiers as a kind of a show of power. And each of the soldiers carried flags. And on the top of each of the poles where the flags were attached to was a small metal bust of Caesar. Now, the other Roman governors had removed these little metal images of Caesar because, you see, the Romans worshiped Caesar as a god. And because of that, the Jews believed that these were graven images. I mean, they understood that the Romans uh, worshipped Caesar. And so to the Jew, these images of Caesar represented graven images and therefore idols. And they would not tolerate idols in their land. Now, they immediately went to Pilate and asked him to remove the images from the, uh, the, the flags. But he refused. They persisted, but he was adamant, man. He was about bound and determined to show these people who were, was going to be boss of this, uh, of this area. And so after he finished his business in Jerusalem, he went back to Caesarea, but the Jews followed him. A whole mob of them went back to Caesarea with him. And for the next five days, they bugged him relentlessly to take the images off of those flags until he was so furious with them he told them all to meet him in the amphitheater. And when they all gathered in the amphitheater, he surrounded the place with his soldiers. And then he told them, look, 
If you guys don't go back to Jerusalem right now and stop bugging me, I'm going to have your heads right here and now. I'm going to chop your heads clean off right now. Well, they bared their necks and dared him to go ahead. No pun intended. And they had him. He was stuck. I mean, he had tried to scare them, but they called his bluff. There was no way, no way he could slaughter a bunch of defenseless people. Rome would never have tolerated that, so he was beaten. So he was forced to remove the images from the, the flags. And so he does not start off on the best foot with these people. Later on, he has a change of heart and decides, you know, maybe I need to ingratiate myself with these people. I mean, you know, maybe I need to change my, and maybe strong arming these people is not the way to go. Uh, I'll do something nice for them, maybe win them over that way. So he looks around and he decides, you know, Jerusalem really does need a better water supply. The water in Jerusalem was not very good. So he decides he's going to build an aqueduct, which was going to bring more water into the city, which was a good thing. It was a good idea. The city really did need another water supply. The only problem was that Pilate did not have the money to fund this project. And so what does he do? He goes to the temple treasury and takes money out of the temple treasury to fund the aqueduct project, money that was devoted to God. And you know how Jews felt about things given to God. I mean, they went berserk. I mean, they, they rioted in the streets. I mean, I mean, they went crazy. And how did Pilate handle this? Well, he had a bunch of plainclothes Roman soldiers go in among the crowds, and at a given signal, they clubbed and stabbed hundreds of them to death. So what started out bad got even worse. Well, the final confrontation came sometime later, when Pilate decided to make Herod's palace in Jerusalem, uh, his uh, residence for a while. And when he did that, he brought his troops into the palace and he decided to make for them uh, some brand new shields. And on the shields, he had engraved the image of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor. Well, again, the Jews thought, hey, that's a graven image, you know, and you got to change the shields, man. You can't have, you can't have Tiberius' picture on those shields, you know. That's a graven image. We, we won't tolerate it, you know. And Pilate was, had had it. He was done being pushed around by these guys. And so he just absolutely flat out refused. Well, they sent word to Tiberius himself. I mean, they lodged a formal complaint with the emperor of Rome, which was their right to do being under Roman jurisdiction. Tiberius could care less about some shallow uh, attempt by Pilate to ingratiate himself with the emperor. All he cared about was keeping peace in the region. He told Pilate, you better change those shields now, and I better not hear any more problems from your area, or, you know, uh, it's not going to be good. So that then becomes the background for this incident we see here early that morning. I mean, you understand now that Pilate is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, he's been appointed by Rome to administer justice. And you know, Rome was corrupt in a lot of ways, but they did pride themselves on justice for some strange reason. You know, when they took over an area, they prided themselves on maintaining justice and their subjects they, they wanted to treat fairly. And Pilate had been appointed by Rome to administer justice. That was his job. But if he carried out his job, he would have had to have let Jesus go because Jesus was an innocent man, and Pilate knew it. But if he let Jesus go, he knew that that would really 
uh, inflamed the Jews against him, and he couldn't afford another negative report to Tiberius because it probably would have meant his job and possibly his head. And so he was stuck between doing what was right and keeping his job and his life. And so we see him vacillating back and forth. We get this picture of Pilate as a, and some people are sympathetic towards Pilate. They see in this man a guy caught in a very tough administrative position. I don't see it that way. Pilate was no wimp. Pilate was a vicious, uh, cruel administrator. If he had had his way, he would have slaughtered all of them a long time ago. Uh, he was only doing what he had to do. He knew what he had to do. And uh, so don't be sympathetic towards Pilate. He should have done what was right, regardless of how it reflected on him. But as we're going to see, he doesn't do that. And so the Jews come to Pilate with Jesus, and because they won't go into him, he has to come out to meet them, of course. They don't want to be defiled. And he rightly asks them, all right, what are the charges against this man? Now, Pilate, no doubt, had heard about Jesus Christ. I mean, as I said, even though he lived up in Caesarea, he got down to Jerusalem quite a few times during the year. Uh, as Paul the Apostle said when he was uh, preaching to a group of people, he's uh, talking about Jesus and the miracles he did and all the other things in the resurrection. Paul said, these things were not done at a corner. I mean, they weren't done in secret. He did these things openly. Well, sure he did. And so Pilate knew of Jesus. He had heard about the works that he did, the words that he spoke. He had, uh, he had no doubt known the, of the following that he had, you know, the people that had followed him, the multitudes that had been healed by Jesus Christ. He no doubt knew of the triumphal entry that took place four days earlier into the city of Jerusalem. I mean, Pilate had heard about all these things. And no doubt he also had known of, of the animosity of the Jews, the Jewish leadership towards Jesus Christ because of the following that he had and how he was respected by the people. And they, many considered him to be Messiah and the miracles that he performed. There was a lot of animosity and jealousy uh, in the Jews' hearts towards Jesus. When I say Jews, I mean the leadership. And so Pilate knew of all of that. He also knew something was brewing because the night before, around midnight, shortly before, shortly after, the Jews had come to him asking him for a detachment of Roman soldiers, about, about four to 600 guys, to go with them to arrest somebody. Now we know that, of course, was the detachment of soldiers they brought to the Garden of Gethsemane to, to arrest Jesus. Uh, whether or not they told Pilate it was to arrest Jesus, we don't know. What we do know is that Pilate had granted their request and sent with them a detachment of Roman soldiers. So Pilate knew something was up. Something was brewing. And now it's about ready to, to come to a head. And so in verse 29, Pilate then uh, went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Now, it's obvious they're not looking for a judge, but simply an executioner. And there's a tone of sarcasm and condescension in their reply. You can see that there's really no... No love lost between these two, okay, the Jews and Pilate. Um, Pilate said, you know, what's the accusation? And they basically said to him, look, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him to you. You know, we found him guilty. That's all you really need to know. All we want you to do is put him to death, basically is what they're saying to him. 
But really, in all reality, what they're doing is avoiding the issue because they know. They know that they haven't got anything on Jesus that would stick in a Roman court of law. They know that. They know if they come to Pilate and say, well, we find this man guilty of blaspheming our God, Pilate's going to laugh in their face and go get out of here. What do I care about your religious laws? I don't care. I'm only concerned about Roman law. That's what I'm uh, paid to uphold. Pilate could care less about whatever religious things uh, they had against Jesus Christ. They knew that. They knew they couldn't come to Pilate with these religious uh, accusations, so they had to think of something that would stick in a, court of, uh, in a Roman court of law. And again, back in Luke chapter 23, what they came up with was this. Remember in verse 2? They came up with three things. They said, uh, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the king. Now, was that true? No, none of it was true. He wasn't perverting the nation, first of all. Secondly, he didn't forbid them to pay taxes to Caesar. What did he say? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God the things that belong to God. At no time did he ever tell them to do anything illegal against the Roman government. Uh, yes, he claimed to be Christ, a king. See, what they were trying to do was uh, get him condemned for treason, uh, you know, to be a, an insurrectionist, you know. There's only one king but Caesar. To claim you're a king, well, that's a, that's a serious charge. That's something that Pilate would sit up and take notice of. And so here they come, and they come to Pilate with these charges. And Pilate says to them in verse 31, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now that was true. In 5 AD, the Roman government had taken away from the Jews the right of capital punishment. They, they had given them a certain amount of autonomy. I mean, they had a certain amount of freedom. But they could not keep a standing army, and they had no power to put anyone to death. Uh, all executions had to go through Rome. It's interesting that in Jeremiah, uh, excuse me, uh, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, where Jacob is prophesying at the end of his life. Remember, he's leaning on his staff, and he's going around. He's prophesying about each one of his sons before he dies. In chapter 49, verse 10, he makes a, a, a very interesting prophecy. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh was a term for Messiah. And so what Jacob is saying is the scepter, the scepter refers to, uh, the scepter referred to the king and his authority. And of course, uh, the authority of a king always meant that he had the right of capital punishment. Uh, so the scepter symbolized the right of a king to pardon somebody or to enforce capital punishment. Well, in 5 AD, when Rome took away uh, the Jews' rights to execute people, took away the right of capital punishment, uh, on that day, the rabbis tore their clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes on their heads, and they walked through the streets of Jerusalem mourning because the word of God in their minds had been broken. The scepter had departed from Judah, but Messiah had not yet come. But little did they realize that about 70 miles to the north in the city of Nazareth, a young boy was working in his stepfather's carpenter shop. Messiah had come. Shiloh had come. He had not been revealed yet. But the word of God had not been broken. 
Jesus Christ was a young boy and of course in time would be would be manifested. So they were right. They did not have the right or the authority to put people to death under Roman law. However, that doesn't mean they never did it. Remember Stephen? How they went ahead and stoned him? See? There were people that they did put to death and Rome tolerated it to a point although they were on shaky ground and they could have been uh, they could have been charged with a serious crime uh, but Rome did tolerate some of the executions especially if it was regard to religious things so then why didn't they just put Jesus to death this was a religious religious issue because the Jews didn't want Jesus blood on their hands first of all the people still considered him a great prophet and they didn't want it you know, it said that they were the ones who killed who the people believed to be Messiah. They wanted Rome to do the dirty work. So they could point to Rome and say, well, you know, it wasn't our fault. You know, he claimed these things and Rome picked up on him and Rome put him to death because of his claims. You know, he claimed to be king and it wasn't our fault. See, they wanted Rome to bloody its hands. They did not want to have to... Uh, to deal with this or to be accused of this. But really, the real thing that was going on here in verse 32, it says that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying by what death he would die. And of course, in several different places, Jesus prophesied about the kind of death he would die. But in Matthew chapter 23, I'm sorry, chapter 20, in verse 18, Jesus said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. See, Jesus knew full well what was going to happen to him. And of course, this was nothing new, because a thousand years before Christ was ever born, in Psalm 22, David prophesied by what manner Messiah would die, and he describes the crucifixion more graphically than even the New Testament does. Uh, centuries before crucifixion was ever even invented. We know a thousand years before Christ what manner of death Jesus would, uh, how he would be uh, killed. And of course Jesus himself knew full well how he was going to be killed. In fact he knew it was the plan of God that he was going to be uh, crucified by the hands of the Romans. He had to be lifted up. Remember he said if the Son of Man is lifted up he will draw all men to himself. See, he knew. The scriptures prophesied that he must be lifted up on the cross. That was the manner of death he was to suffer. Of course, if the Jews would have executed him, how would they have done it? They would have stoned him. That's their form, that was their form of execution. So they couldn't kill him. God would not allow them to, even though they were guilty. Uh, it's just that God had it planned that Jesus would be executed uh, by the hands of the Romans. In verse 33, it goes on to say, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And the emphasis in the Greek is on the you. Are you the king of the Jews? See, it's kind of a mocking, sarcastic kind of a tone. You don't understand. He's looking at a man whose face is badly beaten and swollen, He's wearing simple yet filthy clothes because he's been mauled and beaten and everything else. And he's standing before Pilate and the charge is this guy claims to be the king of the Jews. Pilate had to find that funny. I mean, he, he, he thought, what is this, a joke? 
Are you the are you the king of the you you, you claim to be the king of the Jews? See, he couldn't believe it. I mean, it was like it was a big joke to him. And so the emphasis is on the you. He's mocking uh, Jesus' claims. And in verse 34, Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself on this, or did others tell you this about me? In other words, Jesus is saying, Is this your opinion or someone else's? I mean, are you asking me this question because you really are seeking to know the truth, or simply because somebody told you I'm a king and you're just, you know, you're mocking me, you're, you're being sarcastic? The only time Jesus really, uh, one of the few times Jesus really answered Pilate in anything, or, or actually Jesus isn't even answering him, he's, what is he doing? He's asking a question, basically, see? Pilate is interrogating him, but all of a sudden now Jesus is interrogating Pilate. It's interesting how the Jesus is kind of flipping what's going on here. Suddenly it's not Jesus who's on trial, but who? But Pilate. And he asks him the, the question of the ages, really. When Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, do you really want to know? Are you asking me a sincere question because you want to know the truth? Or simply are you mocking me because you heard somebody else say, I was a king? You see, the Lord always stands ready to answer anyone who comes to him with a sincere question wanting to know the truth. The Lord will always answer in some way, shape, or form, will answer that person's question. If you're a seeker wanting to know if Jesus is really who he claimed to be, if you really want to know the truth and you come to God and say, Lord, is Jesus Christ your son? Is he the only way to you? Is he the way, the truth, and the life? Is there no other way to you but through him? I want to know the truth. You know what? God will find some way, and usually it's through his word, to get you the answers that you desire. He will always answer the heart of a sincere and honest seeker of truth. But those people who are not sincere who only ask questions that out of insincerity and you know hypocrisy. A lot of people, you know, they you'll come across them and they'll ask you questions, but you get the, the definite impression through their tone and you know, it's just mockery. They're just being sarcastic. They don't really want to know the truth. They're just kind of pulling your chain, kind of, you know, just kind of messing with you, that kind of a thing. And for those people, God does not answer. He remains silent. Even as uh, Jesus said in John 7, 17, if anyone desires to know the truth, if anyone desires to know uh, the doctrine, he will know. God will, will, will give him that information. But if a person is insincere and is really not interested in knowing the truth, then the Lord reveals nothing. And so I love the way Jesus is kind of turning the tables now. It was Pilate interrogating Jesus. Now Jesus all of a sudden flips it around and he's interrogating Pilate. It's no longer Jesus who's on trial, but really Pilate. Well, Pilate answers in a defensive way. He said in verse 35, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Uh, Pilate answers in a kind of defensive way. Jesus says, Do you really want to know? Are you, are you asking me sincerely? I mean, am I a king? And he kind of steps on, on Pilate's toes a little bit and kind of presses him for a response, as God always does. You know, it's, it's never good enough, well, my mother believes uh, Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, or my wife or my husband or my neighbor or this guy at work, I, you know, this crazy Christian I, I work with. That's never good enough. The Lord always wants to, what do you think? You know, I mean, how do you feel? And Jesus basically said that to Pilate. 
I mean, do you want to know? Or you just, you know, because somebody else told you I'm a king. I mean, what do you think? Do you really want to know if I'm a king? And Pilate answers, am I a Jew? You know, I'm not saying you're a king. I mean, this is what they're saying. I could care less about your religious issues, and I could care less about, uh, you know, your claims about being the Jewish Messiah. I mean, uh, let's get to the issue at hand, okay? Let's just stick to the political issues. What have you done? Now, I love that, because that's the response of many unbelievers. When we begin to press them, you know, to make a decision or to where they stand with Jesus Christ, they often turn the tables and move completely away, because to many unbelievers, religious issues are irrelevant and unimportant. Just like Pilate. I don't care about your religious issues, what he said to Jesus. They claim you're a Jew. They, uh, the king of the Jews. They claim you're Messiah. I could care less. I'm only concerned about practical issues that deal with my everyday life. And right now, as judge over this area, I have to make a decision based on these accusations. See? Pilate dismissed all the religious issues and got to what he thought was really relevant and important, which were the practical and political issues. And that's how many unbelievers will do it. They, they believe that religious issues are irrelevant and unimportant, but Pilate didn't realize, I'm sure at that moment, he does now of course, that the decision that he was going to make that day with regard to Jesus Christ as to who he was, was going to be the most relevant and important decision and judgment of his entire life. Truly, Jesus was not on trial, Pilate was, as is every person who puts Jesus on trial in their heart. He's not really on trial there because their decision will either pardon their sins or sentence them to an eternity without God. See, when we say to a person, what do you think about Jesus? You know, who was he? What do you think about him? I mean, who do you say he was? Well, oftentimes people will say, well, to me that's not important. I don't really care. I'm only concerned about the rent food, practical issues. That religious stuff is irrelevant and unimportant to me. Well, I think again it's the most relevant and important question that's facing you, although you may not know it. Say, who is Jesus? And if you say, well, he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, excellent. Now, how are you going to respond to who he was? Just knowing who he was is not enough. You could know that Jesus is the Son of God, Savior of the world, the only way to the Father, and still go to hell because you haven't taken the next step to invite Him into your heart and make Him Lord and ruler of your life. And so Pilate doesn't realize it at this moment, but he's about to make the most important judgment of his life. And so in verse 36, he just, well, he says, well, what, do you, what have you done? I, I don't, I'm not concerned about these religious matters. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. See, Pilate said, Are you a king? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate said, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, Well, I am a king, but not the kind of king you're thinking of. My kingdom is not earthly, it's heavenly. If my kingdom were of this earth, then my servants would fight. But because my kingdom is heavenly, uh, no, my servants uh, don't fight. What he's saying is all in the plan and program of God. But the idea is that he is saying to Pilate, my kingdom is not earthly, it's heavenly, and I am a king, but I am no insurrectionist. I'm no, uh, no rebel. And that was 
obvious, even to Pilate, I'm sure. Because Pilate, you know, had heard about Jesus, and at no time, I'm convinced, had he ever gotten any kind of a report that Jesus was trying to lead an insurrection or a revolt against Rome. Rome was real. That was the one thing that, man, they had no tolerance for. If they heard of anyone trying to lead a revolt against Rome, man, they moved in quickly and squashed it. I mean, if Jesus had been been a rebel, an insurrectionist, and they had gotten wind of it, man, they would have moved in right away and arrested him. In fact, that's all the Jews would have needed. Uh, you know, I mean, they finally came up with these charges that he had claimed to be a king and all, but they knew he wasn't leading any kind of revolt against Rome, and Pilate knew it too. And so Pilate therefore said to him, You are a king then, and Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Backing up just a little bit. Remember when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on that donkey four days earlier? We call it the triumphal entry. It was really the tearful entry or the, uh, the tragic entry because he wasn't received as king. He was rejected, basically. He had come at that point to bring his kingdom. Remember at different points in the gospel we read that they wanted to take him by force and make him king, but he wouldn't allow them to do that. He always kind of slipped away from them and all. Why? Because his time had not yet come. He was working on a very specific timetable. You see, six centuries earlier in the book of Daniel, an angel had prophesied to Daniel the exact day Messiah would come riding into Jerusalem proclaiming himself as king. And it all had to do with the uh, orders given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and all. And they knew the exact day when Messiah would come riding into Jerusalem declaring himself to be king. That day figured out to be April 6, 32 AD. And here it was. And Jesus rides into the city, but he's rejected. And he weeps over the city. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had only known the day of your visitation, if you had only known the day that your Messiah was going to visit you, you should have known. Scripture was clear. But because you hid yourself from the truth, now your city is left to you desolate. I mean, and he prophesies about this horrible thing coming upon Jerusalem, whereby the Roman legions would come and destroy the city and slaughter millions of, a uh, million and a half Jews and all, a horrible bloodbath, all because they rejected, they did not know the day of their visitation, they did not know the day Messiah would come, and they rejected him. Well, when they rejected the king, they rejected his kingdom. If they had received Jesus Christ as their Messiah and king, he would have established the millennial kingdom right then and there. Of course, he knew they weren't going to do that, so of course he didn't. When they rejected him, they rejected the kingdom. But the kingdom still came inwardly and invisibly into the hearts of everyone who did accept Jesus as king. See, at one point he turns away from the nation. Remember he came initially and said, I have come only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? When Israel rejected him, he began to turn to the Gentiles. On an individual basis, Jew and Gentile, whoever would receive him as king into their hearts, the kingdom of God came into their hearts in a very small and yet real way. Remember when the kingdom in the prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah and other places, when it says it talks about the millennial kingdom, it talks about miracles taking place, the deaf 
being made to, uh, to hear and the mute to sing and the lame to walk and the blind to see and all. It talks about miracles and all taking place when the kingdom is established. For everyone who received the king, and of course great joy and the fulfillment and everything else, for everyone who received the king into their heart, the kingdom came into their heart in a very real but small way, you might say. Uh, the Bible called it the mystery form of the kingdom. How that everybody who's accepted Christ as king into their hearts have become a part of the kingdom right now, actually. Uh, it's kind of a mystery form of the kingdom. It's kind of a secret thing. Uh, the kingdom is invisible, but it's here among us. We're part of the kingdom. And the same things that are going to happen universally and literally across the whole face of the earth when Jesus comes back the second time to establish his kingdom, and that's when the kingdom will no longer be a mystery. It will be visible, see? But right now, we're a part of that. The joy, the fulfillment of having the king reign over our lives, we, we experience the healings, the miracles the church of Jesus Christ sees. And the kingdom has come, but not politically, not visibly, not universally, but spiritually, inwardly, invisibly, but it's come. And all we're waiting for is Jesus to come back again to establish the kingdom, and then we just go in with him because we're already members. But to be allowed into that kingdom, you have to first make Jesus the king in your heart to rule over your life. If you don't give him authority right now to rule over your life as king, then don't be surprised when he doesn't receive you into his kingdom when he comes to establish it. Because that's what it's all about. When you receive the king into your heart to rule over your life right now, well, you become a member of the kingdom in a mystical, uh, mysterious kind of way, as the Bible puts it, a secretive kind of way, in a sense, invisible and all. But someday, as Jesus prophesied, he was going to come again to establish his kingdom on the earth. And when he does that, we, who are members of the kingdom, will be allowed to enter it with him. So he says, my kingdom. He says, you say rightly, for this reason I was born a king. Uh, for this cause I have, I've been born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who hears, who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus came to proclaim the truth. Of course, the truth he was talking about was the gospel, which was a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? Because they believed they didn't need, uh, they were righteous already. They didn't need Christ. They didn't need, you know, they believed they were already righteous through their works. So when Jesus came, came claiming that no one was righteous apart from faith in him, well, they stumbled over that. They couldn't accept that. To the Greeks or to the Gentiles, it was foolishness to think a, a carpenter from Nazareth who was nailed to a cross and crucified could be the savior of the world. To them, that was absolutely ridiculous. But as Paul the Apostle goes on to say, but to both Jew and Gentile, whoever received this message, this truth, well, they understand it's, it's the power of God unto salvation. And so what Paul was saying is that all, that who, all who are of the truth would hear the gospel. Even as Paul said, anyone who thinks the gospel is foolishness is what? Perishing. But those who are of the truth receive the truth and, of course, are saved by accepting Christ. But now when Jesus said to Pilate, I have come to bear witness of the truth. Pilate, and remember, now Pilate was a product of an era in which many Greek and Roman philosophers have come down the pike grappling with the question of truth, the whole issue of truth and come up with all kinds of, of ideas about truth. And you know, it had just 
worn itself thin until many people had just gotten totally disillusioned with ever being believing they could ever come to know ultimate truth. I mean, and so when Pilate, when Jesus said, I've come to bear witness of the truth, Pilate probably rolled his eyes and said, yeah, what is truth? A sarcastic response from a man who was just frustrated uh, over the whole issue of, of ever knowing ultimate truth, but yet Jesus said, I've come to bear witness of the truth. What is the truth? What truth? Ultimate truth. I mean, why am I here? What's life all about? Does life really have any kind of meaning and purpose? Of course, the Greeks wrestle with these concepts. Many of them, like our scientists today who are evolutionists, have basically came to the conclusion there is no real purpose or meaning to life. I mean, it's all a big accident. We, were all, we just exist. So just enjoy what you have. Eat, drink, and be merry. There's nothing else but the physical, the, what you see right here and now. When you die, that's all there is. Of course, not every Greek philosopher believed that, but many did. Even as we see in, in, in our scientific community, many scientists who cling to the theory of evolution believe that we are just you know, the result of a lot of accidents and, uh, and uh, you know, the genetic process that you know, uh, chemicals uh, billions of years ago came together in just the right combination, just the right time to form the first protein molecule, which then became, uh, through a, a series of, of, of genetic mutations and accidents, became DNA, which eventually evolved into uh, simple life and then more complex life as we, uh, as we uh, crawled out from the primordial ooze onto dry ground and lost our tails and fins and became, you know, whatever. And, uh, and of course, there's no real uh, meaning to life. It's just all the result of amoral processes, scientific uh, processes and the genetic thing. And it, it, we're just, it just, here we are. There's no meaning to life. There's no real, well, that's a very shallow concept of life. How could you really live with that concept? And many, many really people can't. To think that there is really no higher purpose, they're all just the result of accidents in the genetic process or whatever, there is no God, there is no higher purpose in life, that's an empty, tragic way to approach life. But it doesn't at all get into some of the just simple basic issues like if we're all the result of amoral processes, then where did morality come from? Where did right and wrong come from? The Bible says that God coded into each one of our hearts His law and then gave us an alarm system to let us know when we violate those laws. It's called our conscience. And even Paul the Apostle says, even the Gentiles, the pagans who don't have the law of God, still do things according to the law they know what's right and wrong because God has written His law in their hearts. See, the fact that we have morality, even though obviously in our nation we're not really living up to it, but we know what's right and wrong, testifies to uh, the existence of a creator, a moral being who created us and then coded us with this standard of righteousness. Not that we always live up to it, but we know what's right and wrong. In no culture in the face of this earth is adultery looked upon as a moral, virtuous thing? Or is stealing looked upon as a moral, virtuous thing? There are some people that have rationalized stealing to the point where they don't have a problem with it, but it, we're never, we never honor thieves, do we? We never honor people that are uh, involved in adultery. We, we recognize these things are wrong. Why? Because God has put those things in our hearts, a, a knowledge of right and wrong. But Pilate said cynically, you know, what is truth? What is truth? 
you know, and walked away. I mean, what we know wasn't a sincere question. If he was asking a sincere question, he would have said, well, then tell me, what is truth? I mean, I've been looking all my life to find out what truth is. You say you've come to bear witness to the truth. What is truth? No. We know it had to be sarcastic because he said, what is truth, and walked away. So he went back out to the Jews and said, I, I find no fault in him. He didn't realize that standing in front of him was the way, the truth, and the life. Right in front of him was the truth. And you know what? I find that's exactly the way it is today. People are searching high and low for truth, spiritual truth, the answers to life, you know? And many of them have traveled to India to climb some of the higher mountains to sit at the feet of certain gurus because they believe these men have the truth. They know the truth. And it's just sad to see that. People think you have to climb the highest mountain or plumb the depths of the deepest ocean to find truth. And Paul the Apostle says the truth is near, even as near as our hearts and our mouth, because if we confess Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. I remember talking to my mom years ago, before she, right after she got saved. And my mom was never a weird person, although she had gotten into some weird things. She was a seeker. I mean, she was into astrology, into, uh, into seances. She got into uh, to handwriting analysis. But never at any time did my, was my mom ever weird. I mean, if you met her, I mean, she's normal. You, you liked her. She was a nice person to be around. She was just searching for the truth. When finally she accepted Jesus Christ, I remember her telling me, you know, all these years I've been searching for truth, and all the while it was right in front of me. I mean, we had been raised, you know, in the church as Catholics. We knew what the Bible said, and yet we, you know, it just, there it was right in front of you, but you're looking everywhere else for the truth. And there it was, right, Jesus, right there. Pilate had the truth standing right in front of him, but he rejected it. What is truth? He assumed you couldn't know truth. That was wrong. You can know truth because God entered into this world with the truth and gave us truth. And of course, that truth was found ultimately in His Son who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm ultimate truth. You want to know, does life have meaning and purpose? Yes. Yes, I'm here to tell you yes. Because you were made in the image of God. And being made in the image of God, God has a purpose for your life. Your life has meaning. Your life has purpose. You're not just the result of, of random accidents and the evolutionary process. No. You were made in the image of God. God has given to you the ability and the capacity to know God, to interact with God, and to let others know about Him as well. That's truth. The truth is that God loves you. The truth is that even though we're sinners, God came down in the person of Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And the truth is that if we accept Him as our Lord and Savior someday, we will be resurrected with Him to everlasting glory. That's truth. That's ultimate truth. Every other, everything else in this world is trivial. And the world is really into trivial pursuits, aren't they? I don't often watch the game show Jeopardy. You guys ever, I'm sure you've watched that from time to time, right? The, the, the whole show is built upon what's called trivia. Useless bits and pieces of information and facts that have really... I mean, when you put it all together, really, what in the world do they benefit you in how you live your life? Yet some of these people will take encyclopedias and begin to memorize large portions of the encyclopedia. I've heard them talk about how they study for the show. You really can't study for the show. They say you just have to, to just read and read and read and fill your head with all these trivial facts. And they even say it's just... 
really useless bits and pieces of trivial information. And I watch the show, and honestly, I mean, I am amazed at what some of these people know. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. <laughs> I'm impressed at the trivial knowledge that they have. I mean, I mean, I watch the show, and out of a whole show, I maybe get one or two that I, I am, you know, and, and, and half the time I'm kind of guessing, you know. But these people, they, I mean, it's like, how do people know these things? Some of the weirdest categories, things I, I never even knew existed, they have the answers to. On those few occasions where they've had the Bible as a category, honestly, more 85, 90% of the time, as they begin to flash on to this category, Bible questions about the most important book in, in the history of mankind. I am amazed at how these people that know so much about trivial facts know so little about ultimate truth. They know so little about the truth of God's Word. I mean, simple questions that some of the kids in our Sunday school program could answer. These people are, getting, are answering wrong. It's obvious they don't go to this book to fill their heads with information. It's obvious that this is not one of the books that they read to gain, because this is not trivial, gang. This is absolutely essential, important stuff. Yes, the world will fill their heads with unimportant, trivial junk that will not do them one bit of good in living life, and especially not in getting them to heaven. Yet they're masters at that kind of stuff when it comes to the most important book ever written that has ultimate truth in it. They're completely ignorant. That's sad. It really is. But that's the world for you, you know? Majoring on the minors, you know? Man, what is truth? And well, Jesus said, I'm the truth. Uh, God, thank God we know the truth, don't we? Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Father. Thank you for giving us your Son. And thank you, Jesus, for coming down willingly and dying for us. Thank you, Lord, that you came into this world to reveal truth to us, the truth of God. And we just thank you, Lord, that you are the truth, the way, the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. And that we can know ultimate truth because we can know you by faith. Lord, you said everyone who is of the truth hears the truth. Well, we have heard the truth and we have accepted you, Lord, as the truth into our hearts. But now help us to walk in your truth, that we might be a source of truth to others around us who want to know what is truth? Can I really know God? Is there a God? What is life all about? Is there any meaning and purpose to life? Well, we can stand up and say, yes, there is, because I know the truth. And God wants you to know the truth, too. So help us walk in the truth, Lord. We thank you that you have opened our hearts and our minds and our eyes to the truth. That we didn't make the same mistake Pilate made when he rejected the truth and sentenced himself to an eternity apart from God. Lord, help us to walk in your truth that we would help as many people as possible not to make that same mistake as Pilate, that they would receive the truth and be saved. We just thank you, Lord, for your word, for your word is truth. Sanctify us through it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.